The scripture for today's sermon is Mark chapter 15, verses 16 through 39. The word of God speaks to us. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him. And they laid him out to crucify, led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. This is the word of God to us. Thanks, Alyssa. Hey, good morning, guys. You doing okay? Rowdy group. Let's party. Hey, I'm really glad that you guys are here. My name is Chad Kinser and uh, serve as one of our pastors. And uh, really excited to open this passage of scripture today. If you're with us over the last year, you know that we started our journey through the book of Mark. Um, the Sunday after Easter last year. And we've been here uh, all, all year long. And we're going to end that journey uh, next Sunday. Uh, reading the resurrection passage here in Mark. But today we have... Uh, the crucifixion passage, and as we start Holy Week. So it seems a bit fitting that we're here. So if you would please pray for me, I'll pray for you, and we'll see how God would, uh, would shape us by his word today. Father, we come to you in the name of our Lord Jesus. There's no other way we get to come to you. And um, Jesus, thank you for all the benefits that you bring to us as we come before the Father, that we actually have the confidence that our prayer is heard now. 
May we have the confidence that you don't stiff arm us, that you don't tell us to leave, that you enjoy hearing our prayers. And so, Father, we come asking today that would you please hold our attention as we, as we study your word. Would you please give us a greater capacity to look at Jesus with? Would you redeem our imagination, we pray? Would you spike up our heart's affections? Would you make belief? Would you create belief in hearts of those who are skeptical or doubting or wondering if any of this is even true? We pray that you'd help them to see today. And God, we ask as we look at the cross of Jesus, would you help us with the same confession of the Apostle Paul? Far be it from us to boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus. Far be it from us to have any other security or stability or firm foundation except for the cross of our Lord Jesus. And it's in his name that we offer this prayer. Amen. Amen. Well, today is one of those passages that we knew was coming from the time we opened the study of the book of Mark. And even if you've never actually read this account of the death of Jesus, um, maybe you're not even sure what you believe about the account of the death of Jesus. You're probably somewhat at least familiar that this is something that Christians believe. You've heard of the death of Jesus. And so the event of Jesus dying on a cross is one that needs no introduction. There's not like an anecdotal story I can tell that to say that, well, this is like that. There, there's, it stands alone as unique. But that's also what makes this sermon actually challenging. It's what makes this text difficult to deal with today. It's because most of us are so familiar with the cross of Jesus, whether a believer or not, that you're no longer stunned by it. You're no longer bothered by it. You're no longer sort of upended by it. But that's not how it was for the early Christians. In fact, the cross that we now have as the popular symbol for Christianity didn't even show up as the popular symbol for Christianity until the 6th century. Before then, the sign of the cross or even talk of the cross would have caused someone's pulse to quicken. It would have caused gruesome images to roll forward in their mind or horrible flashbacks or maybe even present mental images of some torture being carried out on the outskirts of town, hardly something you wanted as a popular image for your belief system. And yet today, and for the last thousand plus years in the church, the cross has become a piece of jewelry. It's become something of home decor or artwork, even something that people collect, collect crucifixes all over the place. And so the question is, how is it that one of the most horrific forms of human torture has become something that Christians, even this morning, how has it become something that even Christians would sing about? How has this horrific form of torture become something that we would take comfort in? How is it that the cross would move from a symbol of execution to something that you would wear around your neck? And the answer to some of those questions is captured for us here in Mark chapter 15. So I want us to unfold this passage by trying to ask and answer three different questions today. Who killed Jesus? Like who's responsible for this death? Why did he die? Let's try to make sense of it. Like what, why, why did he die? And then lastly, why, why does it matter? Why are we entering into this most precious week for Christians around the world of Holy Week? Why, why are we doing it? So let's jump into the first, who killed Jesus? At the risk of saying the obvious here, at least for a Christian preacher, all of Scripture is wonderful. 
All of Scripture is wonderful. But if we take an honest survey of Scripture, there are a few moments throughout the Bible that are meant to take your breath away. They're actually meant to cause you to gasp. In the midst of all of the wonder of God's revelation, there are a few, men, few moments that are meant to cause you to sort of pause and skip a beat. Think about the beginning of Scripture. Even three chapters in, there's one of those moments called the fall or when sin enters into the world. Adam and Eve took of the fruit of the tree that they were forbidden and sin enters into the world. Rebellion, rejection against God has entered in. And it's a moment that if you're reading that, the God of creation... And yet so quickly, their story now interprets our story. It's not just stuck back there in antiquity. It's this moment where you see, man, we are so quick. We are so quick to exchange the creator for created things. And a moment like that ought to cause us to gasp. And then you have another moment in Scripture, the incarnation, the thing we celebrate at Christmas, the arrival of Jesus, the fact that that creator who we're so quick to reject in the beginning and reject over and over and over and over again, would now enter into the story with those who have rejected him. But not just enter in, not just the capital C creator enters into the story, but he does so in the form of vulnerability as an infant. It's a moment that ought to cause you to gasp. And then we're here today with the crucifixion, that that same God, capital C creator, would die at the hands of those whom he created. With the, with the very vitality of life that God himself had given them, they would now take to devour the one who offered him the breath in their lungs. And listen, none of this is a fairy tale. Like, like none of this is something that's just been made up. This is historical fact. Pick up with me in verse 21. It says, They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. He was the father of Alexander and Rufus. And they asked him to carry his cross. They brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was about the third hour when they crucified him. So what's happened throughout this book is Mark has moved along at a pretty rapid clip. But in these final chapters, he slowed the pace of the narrative in order to give us more detail into these events at the end. And he does it again here. And notice he does that by giving us the name of a passerby. He gives us the name and the names of his sons, of just a bystander, just an observer that day, the name of Simon and his sons, Alexander and Rufus. You say, well, why, why is that significant? Why would he just give us these names? What do those details have to do with the death of Jesus? For remember, Mark is writing in Rome to Roman Christians and Rufus, one of the sons of Simon that's mentioned here as the one who carried the cross, is mentioned later in the New Testament in the book of Romans as a member of the Roman church. And it's as though Mark is saying, oh, by the way, in case you think I'm just making any of this up, you can go ask Rufus because his dad actually carried the cross. He, he could tell you the story. The death of Jesus on the cross is not a fairy tale. It's an established fact of history. Notice the abrupt way the simple way that his death is mentioned in verse 24, and they crucified him. Think about this. Like, it's the most significant event in history, and it's given four words. And they crucified him. But the death of Jesus is far more than just another historical event. 
It's intensely spiritual. It's intensely theological. And part of the way to understand that is to ask the question we're trying to explore in the beginning of the sermon is, who killed him? Who's responsible for this death? You can consider the players in the text. You have Pilate. He was the Roman governor over Judea. He was the man second in command, at least to that area in Rome next to Caesar. Repeatedly in this passage, we learn that he believed Jesus to be innocent. He, he, he wanted to release him three different times, but the pastor is going to tell us that he just wished to satisfy the crowds. And so he capitulated to playing politics instead of, instead of actually siding with justice, and he gave Jesus over to be crucified. So on one hand, you could say Pilate crucified Jesus, and he did it out of cowardice just to win the approval of the crowds. But you have to ask the question, does that really satisfy the answer? How did he end up with Pilate? I mean, he's the most powerful in the area. Surely someone handed him over to Pilate. That's the religious leaders. So the religious leaders are there. And they did so, the scriptures are going to tell us. Pilate understood that all of these trumped up charges against Jesus, the mistrial and all the rest, that he perceived this isn't real. And so the passage actually tells us in verse 10 that the religious leaders gave him over to Pilate out of envy. So then you could say, well, the religious leaders in envy killed Jesus. But then how did he get to the religious leaders? You go back a chapter later and you find it's Judas. One from the inside, his, one of his closest friends betrayed him and he did so for money. He did so for not even a great sum of money, 30 coins. So you could say Judas and greed killed Jesus. But does that satisfy, does that satisfy you? Does that satisfy the answer? If we're honest... If you're reading this passage honestly, if you're reading it with eyes wide open, letting not so much you read it, but it read you, you would have to say that the same greed that motivated Judas, the same cowardice that motivated Pilate, the same envy that motivated the religious leaders, and much more than just those things, is alive and well in you and me. It's not just that we're reading about some other people. Hey, we can actually identify with them. And the death of Jesus isn't primarily about any of the sins of the players in this account, the death of Jesus is primarily about the consequence and the cost of sin at large, rebellion against God, a rejection of his authority, a refusal against his majesty, a silencing ourselves to his presence in the world. And it's not just that you and I have failed to live up to our potential, as though that's what sin is. It's not just that We have brought harm to other people by words and actions as though we can stop there and that's what sin is. It's not just that you've occasionally, I've occasionally given myself over to disordered desires in my heart as though, well, we all get a pass, no one's perfect, as though that's what sin is. The reality is that you and I have sinned, have created an offense, have come as an affront against a holy God. And that is the result of the death of Jesus, sin. You see, if you don't see yourself in the mockers, if you don't see yourself in Pilate, if you don't identify there on some level with Judas, because there's a piece of Judas that lives in all of us, if you don't identify yourself with the religious leaders or even Peter's denial, if you don't see yourself in their shadow carrying out the same, complicit with the same, then you don't see. You don't see yourself honest. Like the old hymn says, It was my sin, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. John Stott, famous theologian, says it this way, before you and I can see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. 
But there's one other person who's responsible for the death of Jesus. And it's the most important of all. It's not Pilate, namely Judas, the religious leaders. We're involved. But you have to look at God himself. God himself. At a human level, Jesus was betrayed by Judas. He was delivered over to the Romans by the leaders, the Jews, and executed by the Romans. But on a divine level, none of this happened outside of the control of God the Father and God the Son. In fact, the cross was entirely the point that Jesus came. Entirely the point. So he wasn't a victim where he was sort of involuntarily executed. He willingly laid his life down, listen, out of love for us. And even he names it. He says, no one takes my life from me, but I willingly lay it down, John chapter 10. And then I have the authority to take it back up again. And so the scriptures hold both of these realities in tension. They hold them together in Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. We we esteemed him stricken, notice, smitten by who? God. And afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. So this is a crazy. He was smitten by God and afflicted, but he carried our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that's brought us now peace, and with his wounds were healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one has turned everyone to his own way. But who? The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Definitively, God did it. And so this leads us to the second question. Why did Jesus die? Who killed Jesus, but why did he die? Mark answers this question in an interesting way in in chapter 15. Over and over again throughout this book, Mark has used irony to sort of make his point. He's used irony to teach something about the events that are taking place, and he does it again here. I'll show you a few. So initially, Jesus is mocked as the king. They place a crown of thorns on his head, a purple robe around him to sort of prop him up as a king, but they're mocking him all the while. They salute him as a king. They place a plaque on the top of his cross that reads out his crime, Hail to the King of the Jews. But here's the irony. He really is a king. He really is a king. He dies as a king, taking a judgment for his people instead of giving his people over to a judgment while he hides away in a faraway tower safely. As a king and through his death, he now becomes the strong tower that we can run into and be safe. They mock him in verse 29. Aha, you who would destroy the temple. You said you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. But here's the irony. Through his death, that's exactly what he's doing. The place where the presence and love of God is to be found is no longer the physical temple, but the person of Jesus, the God-man. His body is the true temple where we come into contact with God's great love. It's being destroyed there on the cross, and it's being raised on the third day. The chief priests mock him by saying in verse 31, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we could actually see and believe. But again, the irony is that he truly is saving others and therefore cannot save himself. 
And it's actually by him staying on the cross that we're able to see and believe. They're saying, if you would come down from the cross, then we'll see and believe. But it's actually by him staying on the cross that we're truly able to see and believe the depth and the extent of God's love for us. Maybe the biggest piece of irony, though, in this whole passage is caught up in this man, Barabbas. Caught up in the convicted criminal that was released and Christ took his cross. Pick up with me in verse six. Now at the feast, they used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in an insurrection was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as they usually did for them. And he answered them, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd. They brought a frenzy about to have him released, uh, to, to have him release Barabbas instead. And so we don't know much about this man Barabbas from history, but this passage tells us that he was a convicted criminal for having murdered someone during an insurrection against Rome. Again, the irony here is he actually looks like more of the Messiah that the people wanted than Jesus. They wanted a warrior leader to come and attack Rome, overthrow Rome, and establish Israel as the nation state. His name, Barabbas, it comes from two words in Hebrew, bar, abba. It actually means son of the father. His name means son of the father. So you have here two Jewish men both named Son of the Father, one in name only, one actually in Jesus, the Son of God. One of them is guilty by the law of God, having committed murder, one of them is innocent. One deserves judgment under the law of God, one deserves to live. And it's likely that the third cross that was prepared that day was actually reserved for Barabbas. But it's the innocent man who took the cross in his place, and it's the guilty man it's the guilty man who goes home free. Jesus dies so that Barabbas can live. Listen, this is more than literary irony. This is the beating heart of the gospel. Romans chapter 5 says it this way. For while we were weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The whole concept of substitution, this is another quote from John Stott, the whole concept of substitution where Jesus for Barabbas, Barabbas for Jesus, Jesus for us, may said to be then lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. But God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogative which belong to God alone. But God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. For the last several years during Good Friday services, as we survey the sufferings of Jesus, all that he endured, crown of thorns, the scourging, the whipping, the punching, the mocking, the driving of the nails, carrying his own cross, suffocating in his own blood. As we observe the sufferings of Jesus, 
there's this moment where I have this visceral cry sort of rise up in my chest. And everything in me wants to cry out, hey, stop. Like, stop doing that to him. He, he doesn't deserve it. Whatever judgment, it, it belongs to me. Like, that judgment belongs to me. I felt that again this week reading this passage. Like, hey, stop. But I'm reminded by Scripture that, that that's actually the point. Jesus died to take what rightly belonged to me. Judgment before God because of rejection of his authority. In order that I might have what rightly belonged to Jesus. Acceptance before God and righteousness with the Father. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, substitution, Barabbas for Jesus, Jesus for Barabbas, Jesus for us. Why did God do it that way? Why did Jesus go for it that way? So that in him you and I might become the righteousness of God, the guilty man goes home free, you and me. So why does this matter? Why does this matter? Look at the end of our passage, verses 37 and 38. Jesus uttered a loud cry, and he breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now this might be a verse that you and I would be tempted to fly right past, or we would miss what happens here out of emphasis for Jesus breathing his last. But the tearing of the curtain temple the temple curtain is a shout of good news for you and me. You see, at the center of the temple there in Israel, there was this curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. It was literally the spot where heaven met earth. It was the thin place of God's presence on earth. And only the whole high priest was allowed to go into the most holy place behind the curtain one time a year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And he would go back there precisely for the point of offering a sacrifice for the sins of the people. But as Jesus was hanging there on the cross outside the temple complex, he would have been able to look off to his left from Golgotha and dying there right outside the city near the temple, the curtain separating God from man was torn in two. And so for all the people that the religious system had excluded and pushed to the margins and pushed back, the death of Jesus paid the debt of sin once and for all time so that the curtain was torn top to bottom and now unleashed the presence of God for all who would look to him. The death of Jesus, why does it matter? It means there's now access to the presence of God no matter who you are, where you're coming from, or what your story's been up to now. Once for all time sacrifice. No more sacrifices. No more need for the high priest. Jesus is the great high priest who offers it once and for all time. And there's one final verse in our passage today, verse 39. It's the next in the line. And so it says, when the centurion, that is the Roman soldier, who stood facing Jesus. Jesus is there breathing his last on the cross. The curtain is torn. He stands there facing him. He saw that in this way he breathed his last. And now he says, truly this man hung on the tree. Truly this man was the son of God. And here's what's wild about this. Through the book of Mark, 
he's the only person that gets it right. This is the first time we see this honest and true confession of Jesus of the cross, who he is. He sees it for as it is. And do you see what's happening here? The curtain that had separated all kinds of people from God has been ripped in half, and the first person to go into the presence of God is a Gentile, just like you and me. Non-Jewish descent, no pedigree of spirituality, no pedigree of coming into God's presence. He still has the hammer in his hand. He's got the blood of the Son of God on his hand, and he's the first to go into the presence of God and make this confession of who he is. And do you know what he found on the other side of that confession with the hammer still in his hand? He wasn't good enough. He wasn't cleaned up enough. He had no time to clean up. He simply walks into the presence of God with the curtain torn in two, blood on his hands, and on the other side of his confession, there's no wrath. There's no anger. There's no outrage. There's no punishment. There's no sacrifice to be made because the sacrifice is in front of him. He finds a God who welcomes him home, forgives him, covers his shame, restores him back to right relationship with the Father. The worst things that you've done, the stuff that you wish you could take back, the stuff that you know before the face of God would have you judged, has been paid for. Man. You say, but how, right? Like, I know that Jesus did that, but I did that. And we're not trying to close our eyes against that. Hey, we've all done stuff. It's not to say that because Jesus did that, we didn't do the stuff. We, no, we did the stuff. But it's not just being covered by any blood. It's not just being covered by any person's verdict. It's being covered by God himself in the precious blood of the Lamb of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The ways that you failed have been covered. The barriers that pushed you back and excluded you from God's presence have now been once for all destroyed. You see, the death of Jesus changes everything. It changes everything. And so we'll land here today. Maybe you're here and you're a Christian or not. Let me sort of try to make clear what it is to be a Christian. Is to see in the death of Jesus... Not just the sufferings of your Savior, although that's there to be seen. It's not just to see the love of the Father who would welcome you home, although that's there to be seen. To be a Christian is to also see your own death. Your own death. Your own death to sin. He died for sin, but in his death, I'm now dead to sin. And death to self. You see, here's what I mean. The Christian confession is that in his death, I too have died to sin. I don't want to carry out a common pattern of life, just keep pointing at his cross in a cavalier way. Because he died for sin, I want his death to count for me and actually transform me. Though we struggle, and we do. Though we stumble, and we do. Though we fail, and we do. His death counts for me, and sin will not get the last word. In his death, I also see my death to sin. 
In his death, we also confess our death to self. You don't have to go find yourself, discover yourself, explore yourself, identify yourself as a number along a personality type. You don't have to go do all of that. Why? Because in the death of Jesus, I've actually died to self. Who I am in the deepest word that our souls crave about identity is now found in who he is and what he's done for me. God has counted me worth it. That speaks something about who I am and what he's done for me is the defining rule. We now as Christians, death to self, I resign all rule over who I am to his verdict. That's what it means to call him Lord. This is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. So that it's no longer I who live. Yes, I still live, but it's like I don't have rule over self. And it's no longer I who live in terms of I'm calling the shots for all this. Why? Because it's Christ who lives in me. He didn't stay dead. We'll celebrate that next week. And it's the life I now live in the flesh, the life I live right now. I live by faith. I live by trust. I live by anchoring. I live by tethering. I live by attachment to the Son of God. Why? Because he loved me and he gave himself for me. And so the invitation to every one of us in the room today, whether it's for the first time or whether it's for the thousandth time, the invitation is the exact same for every one of us and it's to make the confession that the Roman soldier made. Truly this man, he's the son of God. You see, Mark's entire gospel, everything that we've been studying for the last year, is asking you this one question. The whole thing comes down to this one question. Will you surrender to the king of this cross? Will you surrender to the king of this cross and will you confess him as God's own son? Will you surrender to the king of this cross? And will you confess him as God's own son?